Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, and you will move ahead of me and follow my directions. This way. Immediately. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about landing in the wrong place at pretty much the wrong time, and then staying there until it's all right again. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your Dalek Khans from your Dalek Khans, you're extremely welcome on this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's another first night, even though it's a second episode, because here we will witness the first appearance of a bunch of monsters who will be forever inextricably linked with the programme. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, The Survivors, or Playgrounds and Pepper Pots will never be the same again. First broadcast on the 28th of December, 1963, at a quarter past five in the evening. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman. It was written by Terry Nation, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Christopher Barry. It was watched by 6.4 million people, and the audience appreciation figure was 58. Barbara, lost in the mysterious city and increasingly distressed by the closing doors and dead ends, is terrified by something she sees which advances menacingly towards her. The rest of the crew discover a room full of instruments which contains a Geiger counter. The atmosphere of the planet is polluted with a high level of radiation. The doctor postulates that a neutron bomb, something which destroys human tissue but leaves buildings intact, was probably the cause, and that they will all need drugs or they will die. However, they are captured by the inhabitants of the city, machine creatures called Daleks, who imprison them with an already captured Barbara. The Daleks cannot move outside of their own city, and so they send Susan to go back to the TARDIS for the drugs which were left for them by a mysterious stranger. But her friends are increasingly ill, poisoned by radiation, and she is running out of time. The journey is perilous, and the Daleks are not to be trusted. There's a lot of jeopardy in this episode, which is an object lesson in piling on the tension. But that's nothing, because it also has time to make a little bit of TV history too. So let's start with... The When. 23rd of September. The Terry Nation serial has been confirmed as the second in the running order, and he has produced scripts which adhere very closely to the storyline he submitted to script editor David Whittaker in July. 11th of October. Director Christopher Barry has had a look at the first drafts of the scripts, and he has made observations about each episode. His concerns for the second instalment are that the aspect of the main characters feeling unwell needs planting, and that the Daleks need to be more alert and suspicious. Because we haven't met the Thals yet, he thinks that Doctor Who needs to make them sound more terrifying based on what the Daleks have told him about them. Because we don't know about them, beefing up their threat will increase the drama and emphasise the effectiveness of their ultimate reveal, and of course the switcheroo that they are in fact good and beautiful. By the description of Scarrow, Barry asks if it is therefore not in our galaxy. He queries too the use of rain for the storm sequence, which will be hard to pull off in the studio. The information about the Daleks' use of sacrificial rites, which is ultimately not featured in the episode, in this script comes from Doctor Who, telling his companions about them, and Barry feels that this information should in fact come from the Daleks. 14th of October. Attention is turned to how the Daleks will sound. Secretary Meg Hornby from Christopher Barry's office rings Mr Hawkes at the post office 
about the voice synthesising exercises currently being carried out by their research department. A Mr. J. N. Shearm, who is conducting said experiments, confirms that voices can be produced entirely mechanically by an Elliot computer, but the process of writing down symbols phonetically and feeding them into the machine is time-consuming and expensive. He does, however, suggest another mechanical method is possible and will send a tape, and says if they like the results, he will re-record a BBC tape of the human voice and transform it free of charge. 16th of October. BBC controller Donald Bavistock has seen the pilot of Doctor Who and granted the programme an initial run of 13 episodes. Because this story is already planned as a seven-parter, and the first is four, that means that the schedule now needs augmenting with a two-episode story, because continuation after this batch of 13 is not guaranteed. Well, not until the results of some other business that is going on today in Doctor Whoville at least, because Christopher Barry sends a casting breakdown to Verity Lambert, which has him expecting Peter Hawkins to voice all of the Daleks for £100 per episode, which, because Hawkins is the top voice person at the BBC, is an unsurprisingly high fee. As high as any actor Barry plans to use for the main Thal roles, for example, and higher than most of them, and higher too than Jacqueline Hill and Caroline Ford get for their starring roles. As for the Dalek machines, he is only expecting to use three operators for episode two, and at this stage is expecting to hire dancers to operate them at a cost of just over £33 per episode. The three operators combined will cost as much as the one mooted voice artist. 18th of October. Christopher Barry has received the script rewrites, just a week after the first drafts, and has read episodes one and two of them. His observations for episode two, relayed to David Whittaker, are that he feels that when the crew discover they are suffering from radiation, they should immediately be frightened instead of, as they are in nation script, being forced to listen to a long lecture. This lecture, if needed, says Barry, could easily come later in the episode. When the professor explains to them that the Daleks have told him about the neutron war. The professor? Ah, is that Christopher Barry, ace director? He also feels that no one reacts to the machinery in the sense of wondering who could be using it. He wants more apprehension here about the unknown they who inhabited, or still inhabit, the city. Later, in the cells, he feels that the crew should discuss their strange captors, which they currently don't. There is a line on page 15 about the memory of truth that Barry doesn't quite understand. It's clearly not essential, or it is rephrased to be clearer, as it doesn't make it into the production. Or, indeed, the rehearsal scripts. Later, he wants there to be mention of the possibility of the Daleks withholding the drugs once Susan has them. And later, he isn't entirely clear if the traveller's illnesses are radiation sickness symptoms or not. 24th of October. Peter Hawkins is on board and attends an experimental sound session at Lime Grove Studio G from 10.30am to 1pm. He tries out several voice effects under the supervision of Christopher Barry and sound supervisor Ray Angel, who has come up with various treatments. 25th of October. Christopher Barry writes to thank Mr. J. N. Shearm of the Joint Speech Research Unit of the Post Office, which, by the way, is based in Ryslip, to thank him for the tape examples of what can be done with synthetic speech. It was very kind of you to take so much trouble on our behalf, he writes. Shearm had written on the 18th of October, in response to the 14th of October call from Barry's office, inquiring about the production of synthetic speech. The tape Shearm has sent includes samples synthesised on a device called a vocoder, using low and medium monotone pitch. He offers to process a reasonable amount of speech if Barry sends him recordings. The vocoder had been developed in 1928 to analyse and synthesise speech for secure radio communication. Shearm has also sent an alternative, speech which has been synthesised from written characters using a computer. It sounds less human than the first sample, but he and his team would only be able to process 30 seconds of speech at most in this manner, as it is extremely time-consuming. Barry tells Shearm that the first part of his tape 
from the vocoder is especially interesting, but that unfortunately, due to their desire to produce the speech effect live in the studio, the production will not be able to take Shim up on his kind offer of processing the tapes on its behalf. He does, though, ask to consult in future if he needs to do so. 27th of October. They live. The final design blueprint for the Daleks, drawn by Tony Webb and based on designer Ray Cusick's specifications, are done today. Webb had actually modelled for design assistant Jeremy Davis much earlier in the process by sitting against a wall in order to give an approximation of the required size of the Dalek casing. 28th of October. A week of film work commences on the serial. 13th of November. Some of the Dalek voices are pre-recorded for this episode, laid down on tape for the first time then, in Studio R, Lime Grove, at the same time as Episode 1 is being rehearsed elsewhere. Hawkins has been joined by another respected voice artist, David Graham, in order to bring a bit of variety to the creature's tones. This is the first time that Hawkins and Graham have worked together. The final modulation has come after input from special sounds designer Brian Hodgson, who has used a similar technique for a robot called Jones Jones, a robotic butler in the children's radio series Sword from the Stars from July and August this year. Richard Martin has had some input too, and there's been additional tweaking from sound supervisor George Clayton. The Daleks then come screaming, if not kicking, no legs remember, into this world today. 14th of November. Verity Lambert receives a warning that episode 2, with its Daleks and everything else, may well end up over the £1,000 that has been allocated for this kind of work. Design department budget allocations estimate £1,100 and wonder if the money that they look like saving on episode 1 should be reallocated to episode 2. Originally, the allocations had been generalised at £200 per episode, but as the various specificities start to be worked out, these figures are juggled and redistributed, with episodes 1, because it establishes and creates things seen in later episodes, and 2, because of the Daleks, budgeted as the most expensive. This week's episode, because it is the one that bears the brunt of the creation of the Dalek machines, is the real biggie. 18th of November. Rehearsals begin at the Drill Hall, 239 Uxbridge Road, London W12, and continue between 10am and 5pm, up to and including Thursday the 21st. The regulars are joined by the four, not three as Barry had originally thought for this instalment, Dalek operators. Two of them are Australians, Robert Jewell and Kevin Manser. Jewell is short and very strong, whilst Manser, known to both Barry and Martin, is thought by the latter to have the right level of sensitivity to respond to everyone around him and give his Dalek the subtle little movements required to make the scenes with them, potentially static, a trifle more engaging and interesting. Gerald Taylor, an Englishman trained at the Bristol Old Vic, had met Martin in rep. The director considers him to be an excellent character actor, but for Dalek purposes he also feels that Taylor's adept agility makes him perfect casting for the awkward physicality of the role. Michael Summerton is the fourth member of the troupe, but, as we will discover, not for long. 19th of November. Rehearsals continue, and during them, William Russell celebrates his 39th birthday. 21st of November. Having polished off rehearsals for this episode, the one that is to really put Doctor Who on the map, the main cast and crew gather at 5pm at room 222 in Langham Place to launch the new series and to meet the press. Photos of William Hartnell and Carol Ann Ford from this shindig still exist. Those ones of Verity Lambert and the cast raising glasses, they are not this photocall, but rather from one at the other end of this production block. The ones of Hartnell and Ford, though, they are from today. The cast fresh from concluding rehearsals for the episode that will hit the cameras tomorrow. They're girding themselves for a big day on Saturday, but unbeknownst to them, history has some alternative plans. 22nd of November, and so the final episode of Doctor Who to be recorded before Doctor Who has been aired is put before the cameras today at Lime Grove Studio D. The camera rehearsal takes place from 10.30am onwards. 
Christopher Barry has trouble instructing individual Daleks, and so they each get a roll of coloured tape shoved down their midriff and a number scrawled on their dome in order that he can address them individually. Thanks to consultations between Barry and Cusick, the ear-like antennae also have bulbs in which the actors inside can activate to indicate which one is speaking. Another advantage of having actors who know the lines rather than extras inside the machines. Recording is scheduled to begin at 8.30pm, but at 6.30pm, 12.30pm in Dallas, Texas, a shot rings out on Dealey Plaza and the 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, is hit by bullets from a sniper's gun. The news filters through to the UK, but just misses the BBC News Bulletin. The first that any English viewers know of the events is in the north of England on Granada's local news programme, Seen at 6.30, which manages to include the breaking news in its final moments. By now, the world-shattering event is spreading around the BBC, who announce it on the radio newsreel on the light programme at 7pm, so pretty much around the time of the supper break before the recording of the survivors. And so the TARDIS travellers, seen wandering around a planet racked by a nuclear event, are themselves reacting to seismic news, making their space science fiction in the shadow of an announcement that has rocked the planet Earth to such an extent that most people alive at the time recalled for the rest of their lives exactly where they were when they heard the news. In the case of the cast and crew of Doctor Who, it was in Studio D, Lime Grove, and also the planet Scarrow. As Susan prepares for her arduous journey back to the city, the Doctor Who team's egress back to their own homes must be a more subdued but no less fearful affair. Not perhaps the exciting last night before curtain up that the gang have been expecting, but now a melding of two massive historical events, one political, one cultural, which from now on will be forever inextricably linked. The company's customary post-recording drinks are not held. The stunned troop make their way home, the terrible news sinking in. The entire cast are paid £2 and 2 shillings overtime for their work on the recording of this episode, apart from extra Chris Browning, who doubles for Aladdin and shuffles ominously around the jungle when Susan makes her terrifying journey to the TARDIS, who gets £3 and 3 shillings. 23rd of December. If you're hanging around Shepherd's Bush on this day, a month after Doctor Who's debut, then you will see something, well, two things, that no one outside the production of Doctor Who or the BBC has, because the Daleks are seen out and about for a photo call which takes place five whole days before they are seen for the first time on British TV screens. They queue for a bus and they try to get on the 207, and they attempt to wrestle a cabbage off each other in front of a market stall, presumably to the utter bafflement of the gathering crowds. However, if any of the assorted throng are watching the BBC in five days' time, it'll all make sense. The photocall takes place between 10am and 1pm, and the Daleks are operated by Robert Jewell and Kevin Manser. 28th of December. The Survivors is broadcast. In the post-Christmas haze, 6.4 million people gaze over the Quality Street wrappers to see what's going on in this new science fiction series, making it 78th in the charts this week. The half million from last week who couldn't be bothered, that's quite a drop but seasonally unsurprising, are going to feel pretty foolish come tomorrow when they discover that they've missed out on a late contender for the TV event of the year. And later, when it turns out to be a milestone in TV drama broadcasting. That said, it's a TV milestone with an audience appreciation figure of just 58, the lowest of the whole serial, but still higher than the last two episodes of Cave People shenanigans. Word of mouth begins to spread, and I use that phrase advisedly, because the word Dalek doesn't actually appear in any British newspaper at all in 1963. The what? The survivor's storyline, composed by Nation at his home, is 26 pages in length. The action of what becomes episode 2 is covered from page 7 to the very top of page 11 of this, 
although the synopsis is for the story as a whole and is not broken up into instalments. Much of it is similar to the episode that we can see, but there are some differences, and those are what will be emphasised here. It begins with Ian insisting that the old man return them all to the ship and travel to a time period where Susan and the Doctor can be treated for radiation. The radioactivity diagnosis having come during the action of the first episode originally, as opposed to this one, as happens in the transmitted version. Susan says the ship is broken, but the Doctor sheepishly confesses that the liquid fuse is actually in perfect condition, something Ian had suspected. But this is no time for recriminations. Ian says he will remain in the city and look for Barbara, and Doctor Who and Susan should return to the ship. However, they are confronted by, and I quote, four terrifying machine-like creatures. One change Nation makes to his typed script is to clarify the sentence that the crew have been searched and things taken from them. Things has been changed to belongings, presumably as things could be, well, anything, like an arm, which would be somewhat different. When questioned by the Daleks, the Doctor hears the sound of thundering water. The city underground in which they find themselves has been prepared to ensure the survival of, it says, a select group. But this is not clear in the ultimate version and is actually now more reminiscent of the bunker-dwelling Khalid elite in Genesis of the Daleks. Nothing is wasted. The Daleks wish to take revenge on the Thals for crimes against their forefathers. Revenge still runs strong in the Daleks, says the synopsis. They had thought the Thals extinct, but now they believe that the Doctor and Co are the Thals and will put them on trial, an event which will take place after the Great Rain. This is something that occurs every decade, and after each downpour, the radiation drops sharply. After the next rain, the Daleks should be able to live outside the city and above ground again. It will be propitious, therefore, if their emergence was marked by the execution of the Thals, says the storyline. Doctor Who points out that he and his friends will likely die before the rain has finished, and so one of his party should go for the drugs left by the TARDIS. That night, a Dalek comes to the cell and says that Susan has been chosen, and despite the pleas of the adults, she sets out. She is unmolested on her journey, but thanks to the thunder and lightning, it is terrifying. When she gets to the ship and prepares for the return journey, there is more tapping from the outside. In the cell, there is some abuse for Doctor Who for letting them in for this. Susan, in the ship, knows time is running out and so, taking her courage in one hand and a large spanner in the other, she steps outside. The biggest what of this particular who is, of course, the what that must have been followed by the sentence The hell are they? by households across the land as they trundled into view four minutes and 48 seconds into this episode. Throughout October, work has been ongoing concerning the design of the Daleks, which has involved designer Raymond Cusick and his assistant Jeremy Davis in consultation with Lambert, Barry Bill Roberts at freelance model and costume maker Shawcraft, and Mervyn Pinfield. Associate producer Pinfield has suggested cardboard tubes over an actor's limbs will do the trick, but Cusick is keen not to have a man in a suit. He has discussed this with various colleagues, including Ridley Scott, the man who'd originally been slated to design them himself. In the script, we are told that they are... Four hideous machine-like creatures. They are legless, moving on a round base. They have no human features. A lens on a flexible shaft acts as an eye. Arms with mechanical grips for hands. We have seen these arms before, moving up behind Barbara. The creatures hold strange weapons in their hands. Apparently, all the steerage that Terry Nation has given the designer is that he hopes the creatures will glide like the Georgian state dancers. He doesn't want legs, and to this end, Cusick is favouring a pepper pot shape. Cusick wants to make the creatures transparent so that the viewer can see lots of machinery working within, but this is deemed impractical. Although the visual effects department won't be making the props, Cusick nevertheless consults with heads Bernard Wilkie and Jack Kine, and it is Kine 
who suggests that freelance contractor Shawcraft should make the finished machines, and Bill Roberts of Shawcraft ultimately has some input into the machine's realisation based on what it is practically possible for him to produce. Early sketches done by Jeremy Davis after these consultations produce a number of original ideas, including the cardboard-tubed walking humanoids familiar from much else from the time, something that looks not unlike a chumbly from Future Story Galaxy 4, and a square tank, almost like a pyramid with the top cut off and a large antenna in its place. An attempt is also made to rationalise the arm-hand combo with a straight metallic arm with a flexible, rotatable, multi-fingered grab coming out of the end of it. As this idea develops, Davis sketches a three-tier design, almost like a cake stand, with a thin, vertical-linking central spine with a half-rugby-ball-shaped head on top. In silhouette, it is not unlike the star of future hit film E.T., but the thin middle section will not be able to fit an actor. A simpler, tank-like design is also tried, the pepper pot shape making up three-quarters of the creature, with two emerging arms, not unlike those we know. The top, however, is a rotatable antenna. Another design features a similar bottom section, but two antennae protrude from the top, looking more like eyes on stalks. Cusick draws up a cylindrical, one-armed creature. It has a claw, and it retains the pepper pot shape and also features circular indentations, the same but opposite shape to the Dalek bumps we know and love. The eye is built into the rotating half-cylindrical head. This narrow design is apparently deemed too expensive by Lambert and will also not allow the operator to sit. Cusick also tries a design involving two elongated, double-jointed, pincer-like arms and a head with a squat, protruding eye lens. Jack Kine is consulted again and he tells Cusick that the circular base shape he envisages would need to involve fibreglass and so this is when the individual slats are conceived in their place. Cusick tries to design these slats around a tricycle to solve both artist comfort and manoeuvrability issues. Davis gets a temporary draftsman who has been seconded to the department, Tony Webb, to sit with his back against the wall in order to give an approximate shape and size required to house an actor of this stature. Costs and practicality remove the tricycle and the interior alters to a housing for a seated operator using his feet to propel a base, which is on casters. With the pepper pot shape now determined, a grill is added to the upper section in order to help the actors inside see where they are going. It's a cunning piece of design which helps to keep the thespians invisible whilst ensuring that they have total visibility themselves when looking out from their perspective. A sucker has been used to replace the fingered proboscis and the gun has been built into the machine itself so that they don't have to hold or pick one up. To break up the shape on the base, plastic half balls are added to the skirt. The original plan is for them to contain bulbs so that they can light up should the Dalek become agitated, or at least to blink randomly. The bulbs to achieve this are featured in Tony Webb's design drawing. He's gone from model to artist, but there's a slight change from what had gone before in that the gun and the sucker are now on different levels. This changes again once Shawcraft build the creatures, as does the need for bulbs in the balls of the skirt, which are just too expensive to pull off. Bill Roberts finds a lens from an old camera, which he inserts into one of the Dalek eyes, inside a dog food tin, giving it the option to change size and break up the visual image of the faceless creature. Cusick is grateful for this addition. The same Dalek, uh, Dalek 3 by the way, also has a magnet fitted to the sucker arm which enables it to lift and hold metallic items. Cusick is also pleasantly surprised to find that the skirt slats have been made of fibreglass after all, thanks in part to the happy accident of Shawcraft not having a carpenter available. Cusick wants six Daleks, but his budget means he can only have four. They are four feet, eight inches tall and painted silver and grey with light blue balls. Now let's look at the episode itself. 
The first thing we see in this episode is unusual for this period of Doctor Who, in that it is neither the same footage that the viewer saw last week, captured on film and played in before the freshly recorded action starts, nor is it a newly mounted reenactment of said cliffhanger. Instead, what we see is the footage from the abandoned recording of the dead planet, used simply because the broadcast version as we know it has, at this point, yet to be made. So Barbara's final moments exploring the city and the advancement of the unseen Dalek are all that remain from that lost recording. The camera following Barbara isn't in the same place and the Dalek sucker in the final shot seems longer and is more central. So it is a tantalising reminder of just how many little differences may have existed in version 1 just because of the nature of these productions. The most stark change is that we are denied Barbara's final scream, but that may well have been in the original and just cut off early in the recap. We simply don't know. When Ian, the Doctor and Susan enter the instrument room, the first line uttered is not in the script. Ian's assertion that they may find some mercury has been added much later, presumably to remind the viewers what the crew are doing and what it is they are after. In exchange, the Doctor's suggestion that the first piece of equipment might be for measuring barometric pressure and another from Ian about a seismograph are removed, as is Ian's line about whoever built this equipment. They invent all this, showing scientific knowledge, and yet they run away from us so hurriedly they can't wait to pick up their belongings. Ian's lines wondering what form the creatures take, and the doctors about the travellers being in the midst of an advanced civilization are also late additions. Originally, the doctor was to correctly identify the Geiger counter, but this success is instead given to Susan, presumably to the great joy of Carol Ann Ford, who will find that Susan's initial alien intelligence never quite sustains itself in the way that she hopes. The dialogue about the neutron bomb and it leaving buildings intact was intended to come at a later point in the episode, in the cells, but is inserted here in order that the audience are not distracted by having an unanswered question lingering too much of the instalment. Nuclear war is a chilling prospect at the best of times, but 1963 certainly isn't the best of times in this regard. The neutron bomb had been developed in 1958, and the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 means that people are alert to the fact that death is only the press of a button away in these politically fraught times. So the fate of Scarrow is less about having a novel setting for a science fiction story and more about reflecting some very real concerns of the time. Nation was apparently inspired to set his story in post-nuclear times after one of his late-night philosophical chats with comedian Tony Hancock. When Chesterton calls the Doctor an old fool, the old wasn't in the script, the Doctor, in pilot mode, was originally to tell him that his outburst is typical of your adolescent attitude towards reality. And the Doctor, when deciding to go back to the ship, originally gets a reminder from Susan about Barbara and is pretty harsh in response. That young woman's welfare is no concern of mine. If she is irresponsible enough to get lost, then she must take the consequences. Now let's move. When Susan, later in the scene, tells him that they are wasting time, he dismisses her desire to find Barbara as stupid sentiment. These edges are clearly shorn off the character in rehearsal. When they meet the Dalek, Ian's decision to run is all in the stage directions, but come opening night, the Dalek is given some extra lines not in the script. It's, I said immediately, and the command to fire are additions to help with the action. Ian's final line about not being able to move his legs is also absent from the rehearsal script and ends the scene on a more dramatic note. At the beginning of the next scene, the Dalek's line outside the cell to the Doctor and co is also a new addition. After Barbara tells Ian that the lift she was in seemed to go down for ages, Susan was to emphasise the point for any viewers slower on the uptake. They brought us down like that, she was to say. We must be miles underground. Instead, we get a lengthy exchange from Ian and Barbara about how she got there, the lack of furniture, and whether there are creatures inside the Dalek shell, none of which are in the script at rehearsal stage and which have presumably been added by script editor David Whittaker. 
The cast get back on Nation's original track when Barbara begins talking about being weak and giddy, and they discuss the radiation sickness, although even this has additions, with her line about the illness getting worse now being another amendment, presumably to up the ante by suggesting the radiation is continuing to debilitate them all. The end of the cell scene should, according to the script, be a close-up of Ian, but Christopher Barry decides to favour the ensemble, panning along and giving them each a reaction shot before going out on Susan. The cell is described thus in the design planning document. A small prison cell inside the city. It has no furniture. It has a practical door which slides open. Outside may be seen a corridor. Contained in the cell is a small grill on the wall. Behind it is placed a microphone which will be wrenched out at a later time. The door must be big enough for one of the Dalek machines to move into the cell. The original Dalek dialogue is slightly chattier. Very puzzling, says one at one point in the control room scenes, and later, when interrogating the Doctor, No, no, that will not do. Other colloquialisms that go include, I can understand your reluctance to tell us anything, but you'll have to tell us, and We seem to be making some progress. From script to screen, it all becomes more clipped and formal. Indeed, even a don't becomes a do not. The control room set features monitors, which appear circular thanks to clever front masking from the panel sets, and one of them features a loop of signal howlround material on film, the same sort of stuff used to generate the Doctor Who title sequence. So perhaps the Daleks are watching extra features from a Doctor Who DVD in order to find out literally everything they can about their four prisoners. Or, if their purchases are from a certain point in the DVD range, about Blood, the mystery of the Mary Celeste and the Magna Carta. When the Doctor comes into the Dalek control room, he is given a chair in the script. On screen, he sits on the floor, bathed in the pool of light dictated by the script, and thus providing a rehearsal shot that is rather legendary. The Doctor's line to the Daleks about not being Thals is a late addition, and he tells the Daleks that he is obviously ill, whereas originally they were to make that observation for themselves. The Daleks were to ask the Doctor how he and his companions have managed to retain their original form, and that they, the Daleks, look like the Doctor, but have avoided neutronic poisoning because of their protective machines. But that all goes. When the Doctor stands up, in the script, there is no Dalek command to stay in the light. That's an addition. But isn't it brilliant how the Doctor and the Daleks refer to whomever will make the perilous journey into the jungle as he, both of them assuming it'll be a man, until Susan sticks it to the patriarchy later. In the breakdown, remember, the Daleks command that it be Susan who makes the trip. Here, it happens out of necessity and is therefore more dramatic. The Doctor, when he asks about the Thals, was originally to emphasise to the Daleks that I promise you we are strangers to this territory. The reply he gets in the finished episode is an historical moment because it contains the first ever use of the word Dalek and an extra mention is thrown in for good measure. The creature was supposed to say just our forefathers but this becomes our Dalek forefathers, another use of the word very quickly after its debut presumably to get the viewer familiar with this hitherto strange moniker. And so, a new word is added to the lexicon, and it has nothing to do with an encyclopaedia with the spine dal to lek. Oh, Scaro, by the way, where all this takes place, is not actually named on screen this week. Stay tuned. Poor old Dalek 2, voiced by David Graham, loses a lot of lines. One about them being able to go out and rebuild their world again now the radiation is beginning to diminish, and a later one which states that with drugs they won't have to wait until the annual rainfall to clear away the radiation finally and forever. Back in the cell, Hartnell fluffs when he refers to anti-radiation gloves before correcting himself and getting back to the scripts. Drugs. But, you know, radiation affects the brain, so it's perfectly possible that the Doctor is as confused as the actor who plays him. And Hartnell is excellent this week, full of dramatic weight and tense exhaustion. It is here, where the Doctor says he was right about the neutron bomb, that the dialogue moved to earlier in the instrument room about what such bombs are capable of was originally to go. 
The whole exchange between Ian and Susan about the Doctor being hot and life returning to Ian's toes and her telling him she has to go and the business with the key, in fact everything until the Dalek arrives, is a late addition, so presumably all written by David Whittaker. Fortunately for later travellers, the TARDIS defensive mechanism of melting its own lock if you don't turn the key properly, what, how, is switched off during its next MOT. As it is, when Susan does get there to open the door, she just turns the blooming thing anyway. Maybe she just doesn't want Ian to have the key. The section in which it is determined that Susan must go on the perilous journey is far more tense in execution than it is in the script. It's more drawn out here, with it being emphasised that none of the others are capable and that she will be going alone, with Barbara's lines about Susan being too young and them needing to plead with the Daleks added too, just to underline what a scary prospect this is for the teenage girl, and just how terrified she is and how incapacitated the adults are. Ian's straight there, straight back is also an addition, as is Barbara and Ian's last exchange about the creatures in the forest being mutations. So props, it seems, to Whittaker, for these tweaks really do ramp up the tension and give the unusual cliffhanger a bit more added weight and jeopardy. The Daleks, when discussing Susan, are slightly slyer in the script. One postulates, if she, before correcting himself to, when she returns, which suggests either a bit of sarcasm or uncertainty, whilst their odd overlapping chat to conclude the scene is an addition. For Susan's terrifying journey through the forest, the design department planning document suggests that it is night, so the exact extent of this forest may be caused by effects rather than realism. In the end, apart from some lighting effects and a couple of inserts, it's all real, with some ingenious camera work to give a sense of scale. Carol Ann Ford, for example, runs on the spot, throwing her head back and forth in close-up, with scenery shimmying behind her in these sequences to disguise just how far she isn't actually going. The point-of-view shots, with the camera woozily zooming into the jungle, use the model previously employed in episode one to be seen on the scanner. In the script, the Thal, who turns out to be Aladdin, represented here by a cloaked torso, is actually just seen as a pair of feet. They're swathed in furs and are made to look as unattractive and not human as possible. It would be a waste of money to hire next week's guest star John Lee just to lurk, so extra Chris Browning plays Aladon. Browning will be back as a non-speaking Thal in the rest of the story. I'd like to sleep, says Barbara, suggesting a slight delirium accompanying her tiredness, which she is succumbing to, from the sickness. It's a nice touch. The suggestion made by the design breakdown for this episode suggests that Susan might see the exterior of the TARDIS by ingenious means. You might consider, it says, since this set is used so little that a look of relief from Susan followed by a view of a photo caption, a twig breaking and a shot of Susan looking frightened and getting up to run might be as effective. In the end, though, she puts the key in the prop doors, so there's no photo trickery. The prop is there, or at least part of it. There is a recording break, however, to get Susan from the outside of the TARDIS to its inside. When she enters the TARDIS after that recording break, the only bits of the ship that we see are the only bits that are erected this week. It's a minimalist representation in order to reduce the space taken up, so it's smaller on the inside than usual. The episode ending is different in the rehearsal script. There is no voiceover from Ian, reminding her that she can't hang around. When she enters the ship, Susan pushes the door, but it doesn't close completely, and, as the script says, Her back is to the door. Some slight sound takes her attention. On the wall ahead of her, she sees a widening shadow. For a moment, she is afraid to turn, half knowing what she will see. When she does turn, her eyes widen in terror. We see the door of the ship opening very slowly. Instead, she opens the door and, as she prepares herself for the daunting return journey, thunder and lightning crash in, just in case she isn't already terrified enough. It's perhaps a less obviously perilous episode ending, but one that has been earned thanks to the build-up intention established earlier. It's subtle and perhaps more upsetting because of it. 
This episode has the largest special effects budget of the whole serial, over £600 more than last week's £373, and dwarfing next week's special effects budget, which is zero. This episode, of course, is the one that bears the cost of the Daleks and their design and building. What this episode saves money on, of course, is guest actors, for which subsequent instalments have a much higher budget. The Who Robert Jewell As we introduce the Daleks, let us meet, then, the first Dalek operator. He was one of four, but he seems to be the go-to guy for one-off Dalek action, the jewel in the crown of the pugilistic pepperpots. He worked on every Dalek story in the 1960s, and like many key contributors to this very British TV show, Doctor Who, he was from somewhere else. Like the writer of the first story, Anthony Coburn, this Doctor Who pioneer hailed from Australia. Robert Jewell was born in 1920, possibly on the 20th of January, and was studying engineering when he was asked if he would like to understudy the lead in a church stage show of Mummy and the Mumps. And then the lead dropped out. So he ended up in the spotlight, and this led to other work in Melbourne theatres, often in the chorus. He also stage-managed at the Melbourne Repertory Theatre. He accrued a couple of television credits in the Australian series Consider Your Verdict, a courtroom drama in which the actors playing witnesses had to ad-lib based only on an outline of the plot, responding to scripted questions from the prosecuting and defence counsels. A mixture of his admiration for British actors and a life change precipitated by a divorce, he decided to set sail for England and seek work as an actor here. He arrived in 1963, got himself an agent and said he'd do anything. The first anything happened to be getting inside a strange alien container in a then unaired series called Doctor Who. He suited the job thanks to his short and stocky frame. A keen weightlifter, he also had a good physique for it. Despite not getting on especially well with Richard Martin, who found him quite testy and belligerent, Jewell soon became the go-to operator for special jobs. He's the one rising out of the Thames in the Dalek invasion of Earth. He was supposed to emerge from the sand in the chase until the impracticability of the sequence meant it was done with a model instead. And when the time came for the films, he caused something of a schism amongst the Dalek ranks. All of the TV Daleks were hired for the big screens Doctor Who and the Daleks, but when it came to Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD, Jewell negotiated a special contract for himself. He was the only Dalek actor hired, and he taught the other operators, extras, how to manoeuvre the creatures. Apparently the other TV operators had been holding out for better wages and were not especially happy when their colleague did this. The way Jewell told it was that he was specifically requested for the second movie by director Gordon Fleming, as he had been the most adept operator on the first one. Anyhow, it seems that, not for the first time in their history, there were separate Dalek factions who weren't too pleased with each other. As well as being in every 60s Dalek story, Jewel also played a Zabi in the Web Planet and operated the giant macra creature in the Macra Terror opposite Patrick Troughton. Prior to that, however, he had been rewarded for his service inside the Scarosian Carapace by director Douglas Camfield, who has a history of promoting extras or giving supporting actors their moment in the sun. And so, in the Daleks Master Plan Christmas episode, the man behind the monster was seen on British TV screens for the one and only time. He plays the clown in The Feast of Stephen, who was revealed, after his encounter with the Doctor, to actually be Bing Crosby. He is credited as Robert G. Jewell. The G, by the way, stands for George. Thanks to this being an important moment in Jewel Towers, Bob took some off-screen stills of the episode, which are now the only visual record we have of the transmitted material. Appropriately, Jewel was the man inside a, it has to be said, somewhat battered, Dalek when the creatures took one last bow in the 1960s. He is the Dalek on the monitor screen, summoned up by the second Doctor during his valedictory showdown in the final episode of The War Games. Jewel sadly receives no credit on the episode, and he was due to work with John Pertwee when the creatures made their return to our screens some years later. 
he was booked to do some promo work with the third doctor and travelled to Ealing to do it, but the shoot was cancelled or delayed and he had to return to Cornwall where he was working. And so, despite a flirtation with the third incarnation, he never had his Day of the Daleks in colour and it was the second Doctor's swan song that also proved to be Jules. Jewel returned to Australia and appeared in small parts in episodes of Carson's Law and The Flying Doctors, as well as, between 1979 and 1986, five episodes of Prisoner, known here with a cell block H added to its name. Often, he played some sort of driver. He also became caretaker of his community theatre in Melbourne, retiring from that position in 1989. Having intended to retire to Queensland, he actually stayed in Melbourne to be near his children and to continue to act, much of his work in amateur theatre, indulging in his love for comedy. Robert Jewell died in Melbourne, aged 78, on the 10th of May, 1998. References Well, look, I don't come up with all of this on my own. It's all gleaned from articles and paperwork and interviews. Richard Bignall's Nothing at the End of the Lane magazine is an extraordinary piece of archived television scholarship and reaches the parts other publications simply haven't managed. Mr Bignall has also supplied various bits of paper which have proved incredibly useful and has been on call to answer any lingering questions. If I activate the Bignall signal, he usually answers the call most speedily, like a brooding millionaire super-archivist on a quest for truth, justice and historical accuracy. Doctor Who, The Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth, contains so much that is useful for timelines and cross-reference and is the embodiment of fastidious research and clear presentation. Lovely pictures, too. And much of the material therein is based on Andrew Pixley's rigorously wrought archives features from back in the day in Doctor Who magazine, and they also feature the work of Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and Alistair McGowan. Apologies if I've missed anyone out there. How Stammers and Walker, with their definitive books on the 60s, 70s and 80s, and each Doctor in their handbooks, deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental story of the entire show behind the scenes. And Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record of this period in the show's history in both words and more glorious pictures. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Complete History of Time Travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference, and DWB did an invaluable interview with Robert Jewell some years ago. I also subscribe to the British newspaper archive, Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are all vital resources, but also places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, so proceed with caution. I would also like to acknowledge the production notes on the BBC DVD of this story, which are by Martin Wiggins. I walk in the shadows of giants, who probably got a bad back from having to bend down a lot in the BBC-written archive centre. And so that brings to a close our look at an episode that quite simply changed the way that Doctor Who was viewed forever. An indelible instalment whose impact resonates even today. History aside, there is a beguiling and unusual cliffhanger that is all about tension and mounting fear. And there's some amazing lighting. You can see the sweat glistening off the faces of the cast in the inky black instrument room set. And that camera pulling back for the first appearance of the Daleks seems to swoop a retreat as if taking in just how awesome a TV moment this is. And then there are the Daleks themselves, a synthesis of voice, writing and design, of experiment and rejected ideas, and even of compromise. And yet, everyone involved, from Brian Hodgson to Bill Roberts, David Whittaker to Christopher Barry, Peter Hawkins to Mr Sheeham from the post office, and yes, from Terry Nation to Raymond Cusick, who will wrestle in eternity. They all aced it and created something that has somehow become both loved and feared in a crazy synthesis of Nazi ideology and family programming. Familiar yet repulsive, fearsome yet loved. They are a tea time great that gives us nightmares, like boiled eggs and soldiers with a final solution. And their brilliance must never be underestimated. An accident of conception that found its various creators at the top of their game all at the same time. The shape, the sound, 
they've remained pretty much in the same ballpark for over 50 years, ensuring that as cultural icons, the Daleks will never be exterminated. Oh, and it's past the danger point. Doctor Who, The Survivors, featured Peter Hawkins and David Graham as the Dalek voices, and Robert Jewell, Kevin Manser, Michael Summerton, and Gerald Taylor as the Daleks. The title music was by Ron Grainer with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, the incidental music by Tristram Carey, the story editor was David Whittaker, the designer was Raymond Cusick, and the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next... So, Doctor Who has many ways of depicting alien races. The first, as we have seen, are the Daleks. Men housed in striking machines, designed and built to create something truly alien and unusual. Next time, it's the very next extraterrestrial creatures presented by Doctor Who, which are actors in blonde wigs with holes cut in their trousers. That's next time on Doctor Who. Too much information. Next episode... The escape. Or, the Thals are perfect. Are you saying that is because they are Aryan nation? Too much information. The Survivors was written and presented by me, Toby Haydock. With thanks to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, John Kelly and Graham Kibble-White. The serious consultant is Richard Bignall, and the music has been especially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There's a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information, which is now exclusive for patrons. As it's ultra-geeky, it needn't be considered essential information, but it does have off-tangent trivia and extra analysis well, because I have to reward the people who buy me the time to put this stuff together because, frankly, it takes blooming ages. Currently, there are far too much information episodes on the prehistory of Doctor Who, as well as the pilot, the first episode, and the first four scripts written for the show. All episode one, all with subtle differences illustrating what we could have had. Oh, there are accompanying show notes as well on my Patreon page with pictures, Alice Frick, Donald Bull, the Coal Hill Kids... And there's also exclusive material, early releases, and various goodies alongside all of that. Oh, and pictures of my dog. I know, patrons, (laughs) they're so lucky. They're also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast. So that's patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke for a little bit extra. These podcasts would be impossible without the support of subscribers to Patreon, who include Thomas Banks, Mark Trevor Owen, Ruben Herfindahl, Peter Harness, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, David Anonymous, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Paul Carrington, Paul Cook, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Chris Fone, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Barry Platt, Mark Keating, Chris Phone, Paul Philip Dahlgren, Samuel, Leslie Coots, Jason Thompson, Chris Davis, John Sheehan, Edward Salt, Luke Atkins, Peter Adamson, Will Brooks, Peter Burns, Richard Byatt, Alex Kafajoglu, Paul Carnahan, Andy Case, Richard Chalk, John Curley, Mark Dakin, Gary Gillett, Ian Gillespie, James Gould, Lisa C. Greco, Dave Hoskin, Jessica Jones, Andrew Jordan, Clive Lewis, Guy Lambert, James Lark, Gavin McLean, David Matthewman, John McClay, Rosser McPhillips, Stuart Mitchell, Nathan Moore, Matthew Newton, Melvin Pena, Keith Perry, Jonathan Potter, Dylan Reese, John Rivers, Matt Sawyer, Keith Say, Len Stewart, Dave Stevens, Neil Tate, Nick Tedston, Nick Temple, Sabrina Tirabassi, Reynard Toombs, Apollo C. Vermouth, Gary Wales, Adam Westwood, Rich Wiggins, Michael Williams, Andrew Willis, Stephen White and David Spofforth.
If you would like to be a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. Uh, if you don't fancy or can't afford or don't want to do the monthly commitment, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke and buy me a virtual coffee whenever you like. And if you could rate and review these podcasts, especially on iTunes, where the algorithms are really important to get noticed, and to get attention and to get traction and all of those sorts of things which really help in the distribution of these podcasts. If you could go there and rate five stars and perhaps even write a line or two of review, that really, really helps and it costs you nothing and I will be eternally grateful. You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke. You can follow these podcasts, which have their own feed, at Haydoke Podcasts. My website is tobyhaydoke.com, and I'm at Excess Malarkey Comedy Club every Tuesday in Manchester at 8pm. And we have a monthly online show, 8pm, first Sunday of the month, on twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey, with me presenting four great comedians from around the world. 